Hello, everyone around the world. Welcome to our event on agricultural support reform and GHG emissions. I'm Rajul Pandya Loj. I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and I'll be moderating this event. Governments spend over $700 billion a year on agricultural support measures such as subsidies, border price protections, and distortions, and investments in raising productivity. Policymakers have little information on the implications of agricultural support for emissions. This seminar examines the links between agricultural support and emissions from agriculture to help guide policy reforms that lower emissions, reduce poverty, and improve nutrition. Thank you for those of you who are joining us for this special virtual event. And thank you to those of you who are going to be watching the recording in the days and weeks to come. We are eager to hear from you and to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations. Please submit your questions using the chat box. You can also post questions on Twitter during the Q&A session using the hashtag AskIfPre. We have an exciting program lined up for you, and we'd like to call on our first two speakers, and they are Will Martin, who's Senior Research Fellow, and Valeria Pinheiro, who is Senior Research Coordinator, both with the Markets Trade and Institutions Division at IFPRI. They'll be making a presentation together, and without further ado, I'd like to call on our first speaker, Will Martin. Will, over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Rajor, for that very kind introduction. Um, it's our pleasure to present this work um, done with our colleagues, David Laborde, Abdullah Al-Mamoun, Simla Tokos, and Rob Voss. Um, in our next slide, we turn um, to the research question, which is essentially what the one that Rajor mentioned, how might the vast amount of agricultural support be repurposed? to better serve environmental, economic, resilience, nutritional um, goals. So on our next slide, um, we talk about, uh, we look at the roadmap for today's short presentation. The first question is what's the nature of the agricultural support um, we're talking about? Second, I'll talk about agricultural greenhouse gas emissions, the, the pattern and nature of that. Then I'll hand over um, to Valeria who'll talk about the modeling of changes in agricultural support and some results on the impacts of reform um, on greenhouse gas emissions. Now, in our next um, slide, I will just mention some of the numbers. 51 countries covered by the OECD in 2015-17 provided $483 billion per year um, in agricultural support. Another 86 billion per year on services such as agricultural innovation, infrastructure, um, storage uh, of, of grain, uh, and so on. Goods that are resources spent on agriculture, but not directly uh, given to farmers. Much of the support to industry goes to industries such as beef, milk, and rice that generate most of the agricultural emissions, as we'll find out. And these are perhaps, and some from recent work with Oxford University and IFPRI colleagues, um, perhaps some of these commodities are actually overconsumed in many countries. Um, <clears throat> uh, so uh, most direct support comes from trade barriers, not fiscal subsidies, comes in three main forms, 
um, uh, subsidies, trade barriers, and decoupled um, support. On the next slide, um, we agricultural protection. I think the, the general sort of stereotype um, is that agricultural protection is very high in rich countries. It's low or negative um, in poor countries. Now, this fitted um, in the 1990s when we first started to get measures of these rates of protection. As you can see in the, the areas with the yellow ellipses there, um, protection was enormously high, around 60% in the rich countries. Developing countries, it was actually negative um, in uh, the 1990s. But the world has changed, as we'll see on the next slide. Um, those rates of protection have fallen precipitously uh, in the industrial countries, and they've tended to rise in poorer countries for reasons that we'll see um, in the next two slides. So in the, in the next slide, we look, we focus on the interventions in rich countries, the OECD countries, go back to 1991, we have very detailed data there, um, market price support, the green part of that support um, was very, very large, uh, almost, the, almost the entirety. But that's things like trade barriers, um, variable import levies that maintained a gap between internal and world prices, uh, and so on, very distorting from an economic um, point of view. Domestic support, that's subsidies paid by governments and to, uh, to, as subsidies to farmers was much, much smaller. And then there was a very small element, the orange element there of decoupled payments, payments paid with in a way that's designed to reduce the extent, the incentive to produce additional output. We had the Uruguay Round Agreement in the late 19, mid 1990s that started to have an effect over the next 15, 20 years. And we see protection coming down very substantially as restrictions came into effect um, on border measures of support. Countries had incentives to move much more to decouple payments. That's a very, very different pattern of reform now from of, of intervention rather of support than what we saw in 1991. Now let's if we turn to the developing countries, we see quite a different picture. Back in 1991, and this is a set in the developing countries on the next slide, um, the set of countries covered by OECD, it's a very large, important set of countries. Market price support was negative, as we mentioned before. Um, subsidies, domestic support, uh, fertilizer subsidies, output subsidies, water subsidies, and so on, were positive but the net effect was negative, the yellow line. Um, but as we've moved over time, as I mentioned, that support has become positive. So it's really quite a different world from the one that many of us have in our mind as what the form of subsidies actually is. Um, and it's something we need to keep um, into account. Now, if we move on to the next uh, slide, um, just to take a snapshot, 2016, 2018, market price support um, still extremely important, 200 billion per year, coupled subsidies 178, the decoupled subsidies 66, and then general services. Um, this is the, the basic uh, time period we're looking at for our modeling work. If we look at the import protection, as I mentioned, high protection to rice, sugar, milk, um, and beef. Those Some of those commodities where um, that it's very, very intensive, a very emission intensive commodities. We now start to look 
at the emissions from agriculture. If we could just move to the next slide. So agricultural emissions, next slide. Um, what we see here is just how important these are in the scheme of things. The agriculture part that we'll examine in detail today, the implications of those changes are about 10% of total emissions and important. But land use and land use change, the influence of agriculture on emissions through things like deforestation, another 11%. So we're talking almost a quarter of total emissions. It's something that can't be ignored if we're um, to be effective in uh, reducing global emissions and, and the implications of that for climate change. Um, if we move to my last slide in my last minute, um, where do these emissions come from, from agriculture? They're not just a uniform set of emissions. They're very tightly concentrated um, in two commodities, in beef uh, and in milk, account for about two thirds of total emissions. Where do those emissions come from? For this work, we prepared a database that looks not only at the, the commodities that are linked to emissions, but the form of emissions, um, because we need that to analyze the consequences of reform. Enteric fermentation, that's the uh, fermentation, the, the emission of mainly of methane that comes from the ruminant digestive process a cellulose from grass is broken down um, to uh, produce uh, livestock products. So that's the most important. The next is dealing with manure from beef and uh, dairy production. Very, very important set of emissions there. If you look at rice cultivation, that's the third biggest. Most of that um, is methane from flooded fields. So those are the areas of agricultural production where we get a lot of emissions. There's still some from other cereals and so on. Um, but when we look at reform, what happens in those commodities, milk, beef uh, and rice are going to be particularly uh, important. So at this point, I'd like to hand over to my co-author, um, Valeria Pinheiro, uh, who will begin on the next slide, examining the implications of changes in emissions. Hi, everyone. Um, I would like to um, thank everyone um, to joining us today. And as um, Will just said, I'm going to start with the um, modeling. Um, so just explain a little bit about the methodology and just give you a snapshot of that, as well as some of the results we found in this uh, research. So the first thing I would like to uh, say is that we used and we improved two data sets. The first one is the FAO stat, which talks about the emissions data set. And uh, in this work, we are also able to look at the emissions by country, by sector, and also by source. And then the second data set that we worked with was the domestic support and border measures. We use the OECD data set that they have for the OECD countries plus some emerging countries and a total of 51 of them, as well as the Ag Incentive Consortium um, that we have. Then with these two data sets, we combine them and we use them with a general equilibrium model. It's a global CGE model that we use the MIRAGRODEP. Uh, with this model, it allows us to analyze the impacts of the domestic support, price distortions at the border, and also the investment in technologies that we wanted to analyze. Uh, this impact, we can see overall output, 
and it will allow us to keep track of difference in incentives across countries, commodities, technologies. We also will allow us to take into account the total emissions per unit of output and source. And when I mean source is the last slide that uh, we'll show you that is referred to lyser use or enteric fermentation, for example. I would like to say also two big caveats that we have in this uh, study, and I would like to say it at the very beginning so that we can keep track of them while we looked at the results. And those are the first one is the coverage. Even though this work it has a global um, coverage, the policy reforms that we imposed into the model are only applied to the OECD countries data set that I just mentioned for 51 uh, countries. These 51 countries, however, they represent 78% of global production and around 66% of global emissions. But we have some big countries that are missing. Some of those are, for example, uh, Argentina, Thailand, and Nigeria. And the second uh, caveat is the, that we are only covering the emissions by agricultural sector. We are not looking at emissions by agricultural production uh, on land. Sorry, we're not looking at emissions um, given by land change uh, use. Next slide. So farm and trade policies impact production decisions by changing prices and economic incentives faced by farmers. In particular, they change production decisions that can be looked at four different uh, questions. And these questions are the which, where, how much, and how to. So it is very important to know which commodity to produce. It is not the same to produce wheat or to produce rice. Different commodities are associated with different levels of emissions. There's also a big difference in where we produce, which location in the world. If we're talking about Brazil compared to Switzerland, for example. Different biophysical conditions and different technologies used in different countries lead to differences in the level of emissions. Then how much to produce? Are we going to produce 10 tons or are we going to produce 100 tons? Again, the more we produce, the more we emit. And then how to produce? All these policies changes the input and output prices and the way we adopt technologies and produce uh, farm goods with that. If we look at the effect of trade policies on exactly the same four questions, the which, where, how much, and how to, we can see that which commodity to produce will be impacted by the tariffs. Tariffs, even if we're talking about import tariffs or export taxes, vary from uh, one product to another. Where to produce, tariffs have a strong impact on shifting production around the world. How much to produce deter consumption. So tariffs increase the price of agricultural products and therefore will uh, increase consumption, decrease consumption. And then how to produce. Tariffs can change the cost of adopting technologies and inputs. So having said all of this, with the idea of giving light to some of the answers of these four, the which and uh, where and how to, we want to highlight in this presentation as an illustration two scenarios related to the assistance given to producers and a mitigation strategy. So two will be the just dealing with the policy and then we will finish these scenarios with one strategy for mitigation that countries may have. So looking at the first one, um, next slide, next. There we go. So looking at the first one, which is removing the uh, domestic support. The key message here is that if we remove domestic support globally, it will save global emissions. 
In this specific case, there is an overall reduction in production of around less than 1%, but we can see that in more developed countries, this reduction will be higher. It will be around 1.7, and instead, developing countries will only have 0.5. Why is this? It's because developing countries uses less amount of subsidies, so will be less impacted by the uh, policy reduction that didn't support that we just mentioning. In terms of countries, we can see that China, the European Union, and Mexico have big reduction in emissions, given that they have large subsidies into the sector. Australia instead sees an increase in emissions. They have low subsidies or less protection than uh, other countries that we already mentioned. And they will have now the incentive to increase production to take advantage of a higher international prices. Uh, now looking at emissions, we can see that the overall decrease in emissions will be around 0.6%. This decrease in emissions from fertilizers and other energy inputs uh, will be the first um, important one in terms of decrease. And this is why, because developed countries use them more and now that they are more expensive, they will be using even less compared to developing countries. And then the enteric fermentation is the second source of decrease in emissions that we see with these kind of uh, policy changes. Next slide. Improvements in market access instead increase emissions by increasing consumption, given that there's a decrease in international prices once that we remove these import tariffs, for example, or export taxes and by relocation effect of production to high emission per dollar of output countries. However, removing barriers have different results by sectors. There's big heterogeneity in the results. If we look at the production or emission by commodity between countries and within the countries, there are very big differences. Canada, for example, will see a decrease in dairy, but an increase in beef production. And then if we look at other countries, we can see that generally production will decrease in protected regions, for example, in Japan and Korea, but production will increase in regions not protected or taxed as much, like in the case of Australia, Brazil, New Zealand, and Ukraine in terms of import tariffs, and India in terms of the export taxes. So the decrease in emissions, we will see a decrease in emissions when we move production from the north to the south, north countries in general have more energy intensive uh, production systems. And then we will see an increase in emissions when we move also from the north to the south, given that the south countries have uh, enteric fermentation and manure left in the pasture way more than uh, north countries. So the message here is decreasing border measures will increase emissions by changing the composition and location of output in ways that lead to increases in global emissions. Next slide. So this is the key question. Are we surprised by these findings that uh, current trade policies are limiting emissions globally? And the answer is really no. We know that high prices limit consumption and therefore reduce the scale of production. We also know that current policies shift production from developing countries to more advanced and protectionist economies. And these same developed countries have better technologies and lower emissions per unit for output for many products. But as we saw earlier, not in all products, some of them, the ones that we mentioned before, and we will go over these also in the conclusions. So free trade maximizes economic efficiency in a system without externalities. That's what theory tells us all the time. And that's 
but with the lack of market for um, emissions and some other externalities, free trade could not deliver an optimal environmental solution. Not the right incentives for the three objectives, if we want to say profitability, productivity, and environment output. So in looking for a solution, we need to address the externalities at the source. And by this, we can use developing technologies that directly reduce emissions per unit of output, factor technological adoption, especially in developing countries to realign economic and environmental efficiency, and address the issue of pricing of the GHG emissions, something that the cargo markets, it is not um, very well to develop at this point. So concentrating more in this last of what can we do in order to overcome these, um, these issues that we found. Next slide. We did also a couple of other scenarios in terms of more thinking of a mitigation strategy. So what, what can we do to really switch the gears and make it a, a positive change in terms of saving emissions in the agricultural sector? So we know that productivity gains tend to reduce emission intensities of agricultural products through changes in production processes or through more efficient use of inputs. So we did two specific um, scenarios. The first one, we did a productivity change that saves all factors and intermediate inputs, so all of them. And then the second one, we did a productivity change that reduces emissions, but without really touching any of the uh, productivity um, change. So the first scenario will decrease emissions, but I will have to, it has a rebound effect because it lowers the cost of the finished goods to consumers. They demand more of it. That increases in output is the source of the rebound effects. This effect will be smaller once we include that land use changes. And then the second scenario will decrease emission intensity but may not be attracted to farmers if the technological change, so the adoption, does not come with productivity increases. So it's almost like a cost versus profit scenario, in which case it is important to understand and give the necessary incentives to the farmers to adopt it. The message here is productivity growth is important because it can help us with income growth and resilience to climate change. Next slide. So what are our next steps? We should broaden the coverage of measure, expand the OECD database that we already have. We should also think about more about uh, production methods and technologies. We should incorporate land use change and emissions from deforestation, and this is the big one. And then last, consider broader range of repurposing reforms, in this case to also expand it in looking at not only uh, profitability and productivity, but also to be able to include environmental good outcomes. Um, an example of this could be, for example, cross-compliance uh, programs in the European Union. Uh, what are our conclusions? We know that agricultural support is high and agricultural and land use emissions are close to a quarter of global emissions. In this study, we highlighted that subsidies to emitting commodities increase global emissions, trade barriers reduce emissions by reducing global demand, and productivity enhancement cuts emissions. Final message I want to leave is there is need to think about the best ways to repurpose agricultural support in order to achieve a wider objective, which is farmers' income, productivity growth, but also to add here the environmental outcomes. It is important to not forget about investment, R&D and technologies that can help in reducing emissions. Thank you very much, all.
Thank you very much, Velen Valeria, for your very interesting and intriguing presentation. I expect we'll get some questions further on, but let me remind our viewers that a copy of your paper is available on the event website. Um, let me now move to our panel of distinguished uh, commentators and discussants. We have three of them, very lucky to have them with us. And our first discussant is Madhur Gautam. Madhur is the lead economist at the World Bank Group and known to all of us. Madhur, over to you. Thank you, Raju, and uh, thank you to IFPRI for the opportunity to, to participate in this, in this event. Um, and of course, to Will, Valeria, and the rest of the team for an excellent power presentation and a very high quality paper and high quality research. Um, I have a, a few comments. I don't have a lot of comments. And, and that comes with full disclosure that I have been associated with this, this work um, uh, for a while now, from its inception. Um, uh, it, it, this, this study is, this research is part of a broader World Bank effort that's leading into a, a, a big, a broader, wider study um, entitled Realigning Agricultural Support for Climate Smart Agriculture. As Will and Valeria have noted, this is a work in progress, um, and this is the end of uh, what, what we call phase one. And with a very important next steps uh, over the coming months to extend the, and the analysis in several important dimensions. Among these, uh, the top priorities are, in, in addition to the economic, look, looking at the economic impacts um, in, in terms of distributional impacts on different types of households, is to incorporate land use change, and second is the impacts on resilience. Uh, and this is in line with uh, what Valeria mentioned uh, towards the end, um, the objective of the overall study, which is to contribute to the triple wins, uh, that's productivity, resilience, and environmental sustainability. That said, um, I just have uh, three small comments. One is a caveat. Um, I think it's important to remind ourselves that the, the results are based on 51 countries. Uh, uh, detailed data on 51 countries. Yes, those are those are quite large uh, in terms of the overall uh, contribution to global output. Uh, but yeah, it is important, and as part of the agriculture incentives uh, uh, consortium, it's important to, to expand that uh, coverage and to bring in more countries under the net to, to look at and how how the policies and and support systems are are structured in other countries. The second, um, and this is, you know, in looking at uh, looking at what we have, even from this uh, sort of uh, analysis that, that we have on the table, there are two very, uh, there are a couple of very interesting and, and, and critical insights that come out. And my takeaways on this um, are one is the need to focus on innovation. Technology is important not only for productivity, but also uh, for environmental sustainability. And this brings in uh, to focus the whole uh, concept of the repurposing agenda um, in terms of repurposing agricultural policies and, and support systems uh, to ensure the triple wins. Uh, this, is, this is also, uh, the finding is also important from the point of view of uh, the ongoing debate and the debate that's been going on for some time. And this is uh, generally based on partial equilibrium models to look at the interaction of productivity and environment uh, which often then is unable, you know, because of the rebound effects uh, and allows, uh, does not allow some clear conclusions to be drawn. So I think we're getting some good insights uh, from the, the results that are emerging uh, from this analysis. 
the, the second important point um, uh, is, is the need to internalize the cost of externalities. And this, uh, this finding is important because it is very much in line with some recent studies that have come out. One is the WRI's World Resource Institute's uh, Creating Sustainable Food Futures, as well as the Eat Lancet um, study on diets from sustainable food systems, which basically are calling for modifying consumption patterns. And the results here point to the importance of policy levers, and, and, and uh, it points to a specific policy lever that can be very useful in trying to achieve that outcome. Um, these overall, these results highlight um, uh, the importance uh, and relevance of policy changes in moving the current food system uh, to one that is much more resilient and sustainable. Uh, and this becomes even more relevant in today's uh, uh, environment and what we see today and what we're dealing with today in terms of the COVID impact. And as we look forward to recovery and, and uh, rebuilding the system is to ensure that the, the new system as you rebuild it um, works towards a much more resilient uh, food system than, than we have uh, at the moment. Um, and this is a very high priority. The, the, the transformation of the food systems is an extremely high priority for the World Bank. And it's also very high on the global development agenda as we heard um, at the UN Climate Action Summit in September last year. And with that, Raju, um, I'll close. Thank you. And look forward to the next phase of the study. Great. Thank you, Madhur, for your comments. And I'm sure we'll be following up uh, in, a, in, a, in a few moments. Let me come to our next discussant, and that is Leonardo Garrido, who is lead economist of the New Climate Economy at World Resources Institute. Leonardo, over to you. Thank you very much. And I'm really happy to be part of this really important discussion and really happy to see uh, this important piece of work coming in a timely moment. Um, uh, I would really like to approach the, to the issue from the other end, uh, from the point of view of carbon emissions. Um, carbon budgets, um, as of January 1st, 2018, um, as we get uh, learned from the IPCC uh, 1.5 degrees report, um, uh, are um, of about 420 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. This is the amount of carbon emissions that we can afford to throw into the atmosphere in order for us to remain within the 1.5 degrees uh, targets uh, that is defined uh, by, by climate global uh, goals. This is a budget that is to be administered uh, for us, for future generations. And, and, and what happens is that this budget that was 420 gigatons back then, uh, and there is now of 340 gigatons, considering the rate of emissions in the last two years of about 40 gigatons. Uh, this budget at current uh, basis of emissions that we are seeing uh, is going to be exhausted before 2030. Um, uh, what happened is that for us to remain with this carbon budget through 2100, emissions need to fall at a rate of about 11% per year between now and the end of the century. This is twice as much the rate of emission success that we have seen in, in many uh, successful uh, countries in reducing carbon emissions. And the question is, how can we uh, move into this more ambitious path? And, and, and this is a relevant question because there is no one single policy that's going to leave us there. 
there is a combination of actions in different areas, and the most prominent are reducing uh, um, the dependence on high carbon uh, sources of, of, of energy. Uh, this is a shift to renewable energy, an acceleration in the rate of progress of energy efficiency by means of technological uh, adoption, technology development, but also other areas that include reduction in waste, increasing land productivity and uh, curbing deforestation and making a huge effort in reforestations. So a combination of all those things are the ones that are do the trick. So even though um, land agricultural, um, they throw something like, they are 20% of the problem as they say, um, they are a huge part of the solution. So this is why this piece of research um, by Will and Valeria and others are so really important. Uh, because land and agriculture are a huge part of the equation in attaining these targets in reductions in emissions. Um, so oh, three things that are key on the, on the land and agriculture are precisely uh, those of agricultural productivity, uh, restoration efforts, and curbing deforestation. And uh, this research on the area of agricultural uh, subsidies is hugely relevant because the policies that cannot get us there are basically uh, linked to some carbon market-based mechanisms. On the area of high carbon sources of energy, carbon taxation has to play a central role and has a huge power to help us move into, into our targets for carbon emission reductions. And then if we want to achieve the simultaneous goal of increasing productivity so we can feed a large and increasing population, but at the same time, reduce the incentive intensity in the use of land. We need to make sure that we have a better outcome per unit of yield that, 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 we, that we have. This is why it is so important. And this is where we converge, uh, what I'm saying with Valeria's uh, points on three areas in which they need to make a progress to name, uh, number one, to rationalize the consumption and production. It means from food and waste uh, loss policies in order to make sure that we deliver better outcomes with the amount of product that we generate, that we have better technology, especially in emerging economies, so they can attain the targets of increased productivity while delivering that in an environment of lower emissions, and then correct the market externalities. So free trade policies can play the role of delivering simultaneous targets of increasing efficiency, delivering outcomes in terms of productivity and yields, but also of reducing the carbon footprint, because as we in the NCE and in the Food and Land Use Coalition, uh, we are basically uh, believe that these are the channels through which we can deliver, deliver uh, better and more inclusive economic targets. So very happy to see this work and, and, and very supportive of, of what you are doing over there. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of this and, and over to you. Thank you, Leonardo. Thank you for your remarks. And I know we'll be coming back also. Before I come to our third discussant, I'd like to remind all of the viewers that you can submit your brief questions in the chat box um, or via Twitter uh, using the hashtag AskIFPRI. And I notice a number of questions have already started to come in on Twitter, and that is great. So our last discussant is Anne Tutwiler. She's senior fellow at the Meridian Institute and the coordinator of the Policy Action Coalition to repurpose food and agricultural support. And we look forward to your remarks. Thank you, Rajul, and thank you to IFPRI for inviting me to uh, comment on this excellent analysis. Just a few points uh, that I'd like to emphasize and reiterate. Um, first of all, this is an excellent piece of work looking at uh, two different important dimensions, that is um, greenhouse gas emissions and 
the link between coupled subsidies and market price support. And I really congratulate IFPRI on unpacking some of the detailed information on greenhouse gas emissions by different sectors and different countries and production technologies, which is really useful to have a full discussion and understanding of all of this, uh, these relationships. I also want to reiterate uh, Madura's point about the need to expand this analysis to be looking at other uh, planetary challenges around uh, water use, land use, and biodiversity, and particularly call attention to the, the need to really think about uh, putting into this mix the impact on nutrition. Um, and Madur mentioned we're seeing, and we know we're seeing from COVID, uh, and we'll be seeing the important impact on nutrition, and we need to factor that in. Because what we're trying to do is to help governments think about how to solve the problems they're facing by repurposing their agricultural subsidies. So we need to look across a, a wide range of, of uh, different kinds of challenges um, countries are facing. Uh, the third point I wanted to make is, of course, this is a modeling exercise and it's a thought experiment. And the way models work is we, we shock the model and tell it we're gonna eliminate all subsidies and all border measures. And of course, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we repurpose those um, existing subsidies and price supports to obtain uh, better results on environment, better results on nutrition. And so I think when we are you know, presenting this analysis in um, public fora, we need to really be clear that this is helping us to understand what the trade-offs are, but we're not advocating for, for going to, to zero subsidies. Uh, we're, we're advocating to use the government support that we have in a, in a different way to achieve uh, desirable outcomes. The second to the last point I wanted to make, um, you know, the, the WRI analysis that was mentioned earlier and this particular analysis, um, very much talks about the need to increase productivity, but it's very important how we achieve those increases in productivity, what kinds of uh, tools and production techniques and technologies, and uh, I think Leonardo mentioned innovation. So I, I'm very careful that we don't leave people with a message that, oh, if we just increase productivity, everything's gonna be okay. It matters how we do that. Um, and then, um, Sorry, now second to the last point. Um, you know, the other thing that comes clear from this analysis is that one size does not fit all, that different countries have different production possibilities. And just to say we need to repurpose subsidies in XYZ way will not fit with all the different countries that are interested in moving forward on this agenda. Um, so this disaggregation and a need to add more countries into the mix um, is really important. And then I will close with um, just a, a short mention of the Policy Action Coalition to Repurpose uh, Food and Agriculture Support. This was an initiative that was launched as part of the Just Rural Transition during the uh, Climate Action Summit last uh, September in New York. Uh, it is a coalition of the willing. We have uh, about a dozen countries who've signed up directly, but a number of others who are speaking with the World Bank who are interested in moving forward to uh, along this agenda to repurpose their uh, food and ag subsidies so that they deliver on a different set of outcomes. 
Um, we have a number of knowledge partners who are part of this initiative, including the CG system. And of course, IFPRI is one of the, the leading uh, centers helping to think about this analysis. And of course, the World Bank, um, where we are uh, collaborating with the bank in this initiative on uh, helping to develop a toolkit for countries to uh, understand what their trade-offs are and what their options are. And I understand, Rajul, that IFPRI will be putting up the very wordy slides that I had uh, submitted that give a lot more detail and background about the Just Rural Transition and the Policy Action Coalition and the members of those two initiatives. So with that, thank you very much and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you very much, Anne. Yes, indeed, we will be making your slides available for those who want to have more information, along with the paper. Will and Valeria, I'm sure you will agree with me that our three discussants have given us very uh, good uh, food for thought, very interesting comments, and uh, I'll come back to you later if you want to reflect. But in the meantime, we move over to the Q&A portion of the program, and I see a number of questions and comments have been coming in. So why don't I go ahead and take them one by one, and I will remind our various speaker, our various participants, please go ahead and submit your questions in the chat box or using Twitter with the hashtag AskIfPre. The first question that has come in, I would like to direct that to you, uh, Leonardo, and this is coming in from Jose Luis Chicoma, who is director for the Ethos Public Policy Lab in Mexico and ex-vice minister in Peru. He asks, in the midst of the pandemic, let's not forget about climate change, which can change our lives in the long term, as well as what is happening now, and how to reduce emissions from agriculture. I know you've talked a little bit about this, uh, Leonardo, but do you want to reflect further on his very specific questions about reducing emissions from agriculture? Sure, thank you very much. Um, uh, this is an excellent question and very timely. Um, I think it gives an opportunity to rethink about what should be um, the model of, of, re, uh, of reflating the economy, of regrowing it, of making sure that it sort of um, take up the pick up, uh, pick up the rate of economic growth, but under conditions in which they uh, it is more resilient, that is that is more um, inclusive to all. And uh, I think that the message of COVID nineteen is very clear in a sense that policies to reduce uh, carbon emissions, to increase agricultural productivity, um, uh, are, are 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 policies that have, that have more robust and they have the ability to sort of to shed uh, to, to to do away with uh, situations such as this one. So I think that everything that is happening. As, 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 as sad and, and as it is these days, sort of give us a, a, a reminder about that the need to move into these sort of robust policies that increase resilience in order to deliver better economic outcomes. And that includes those in the agricultural sector, of course. Thank you very much, Leonardo. Our next question comes from Arvind Padi, who is the country director for ICRISAT in India. And Arvind, it's lovely to hear from you. The, uh, he notes that the COVID-19 management is obviously the topmost of the policy agenda now. In such a scenario, how would it impact priorities such as climate resilient agriculture to mitigate climate change? Leonardo, I'll come back to you on this one. And I will also ask um, if um, a Madhur or a Will would also like to reflect on this. But let me begin with you, Leonardo. Can you repeat, please? Uh, there was yes. a, a, a with, clip uh, the COVID. The, uh, yes, indeed. With yeah. the COVID-19 management at the topmost, how would it impact the priorities such as climate resilient agriculture to mitigate climate change with, uh, with COVID-19 taking so much attention? What is the impact on these 
climate change priorities? Sure, uh, apologies because of the communication was not good before. No, I just to, to, to reiterate, uh, I, I think that the lessons, uh, the main lesson from COVID-19 is that resilience is at the center of what we need to do in order to make sure that we have more robust uh, um, uh, production system, including value-added chains. So one of the things that we need to make sure is that all the policies, including the agricultural um, uh, tariff subsidies and, and, and the whole scheme on trade is so, such that there is conducive to increase this resilience and to increase basically the robustness of the value-added system to deliver better economic outcomes on their, on their more um, low-carbon uh, environments. Thank you. And Madhuri, did you wish to also comment on this? Um, yes, um, absolutely. I think uh, at this time, uh, responding to the COVID health crisis and the immediate impacts in terms of food security are extremely uh, high priority. Uh, and at this point, you know, that cannot be argued against. Um, but soon we have to move and think about recovery. Uh, the next season is, is on, top of a, on, on top of us in terms of, in, in several places. And the question is, how do you want to build back and in the long run? And this is why, as Leonardo says, resilience is at the center of this and resilience is in the longer term directly related to, to climate change, um, you know, as it is in many parts of the world. Uh, people were already suffering from droughts and the impacts of climate change. So it's even more important now that um, that we have these kinds of results to show that actually you can have a win-win. It's not a compromise, and that's exactly the triple wins we are looking for. It's not a it's not a it's not a global set, and 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 there will be certain trade-offs. But I think this is the dialogue and the discussion um, and the support we need to provide to the governments is is how to uh, come back and how to build back better keeping in mind both the long-term and the short-term the short -term and the long-term agendas. Let's not compromise the long-term and make these, uh, these issues worse uh, by, by forgetting them and just focusing on the immediate short-term. Thank you, Madhur. Um, Anne, I see you wish to respond. Okay, thank you, Anne. Yeah, just to, to comment. So we, we have a real-time unfortunate uh, example of the COVID crisis uh, confluence with the locust situation in uh, East Africa. And it's really clear that, you know, particularly fragile governments cannot handle a, an you know, environmental disaster like a, a climate or a drought or whatever, and on top of this COVID situation. And we hear from our public health experts that this COVID um, virus is going to be with us for quite some time. So I, I think it, I just want to reiterate Leonardo's point that, you know, resilience is going to be even more important because this crisis, unfortunately, it may morph into, you know, something different, but it will be with us. It will be with countries. So you need the most resilient production systems, consumption systems that you can have to be prepared for the next time. This is not just over in, in a year. Thanks. Thank you, Anne. Um, the next questions I would like to direct to Will, uh, and several of them have come in. Uh, and then I will come to you, Valeria, after that. The next question is from um, G. Yorgos, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford University in the UK, who asks, in a scenario of global reallocation of agricultural production through sharing strategies, how could the aforementioned trade restrictions benefit both food security and environmental objectives? Um, I, 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 I'm not quite sure I catch the, the premise uh, of, of the question. Um, I think um, uh, 
there are several issues here, and, and one, one that's very important is that one might have thought that, that uh, global protection would actually be raising emissions, and that seems not to be the case. It seems to be that we have the opposite effect, as um, Valeria pointed out, um, that protection is reducing demand uh, for many of the emission-sensitive, emission-intensive products globally. Things like rice in Japan, for instance, that very high protection is shrinking demand more than supply. We need, with a model, to work out what those implications are. And then we need to look at the trade-offs. We need to look at, for instance, can we get emissions down by raising productivity in poor countries um, where emission intensities are high? Can we get emissions down? Can we get at the same time productivity up? Can we spare land, spare land use change, avoid deforestation, um, and so on? So we need to take into account approaches that improve productivity, especially in developing countries. One of the things we noticed in the preliminary work for this study is that um, emission intensities, while higher in many cases in developing countries, have been falling faster in developing countries. There's a lot of very encouraging stuff uh, happening. We need to build on that in ways that improve economic efficiency um, and resilience and environmental impacts. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Valeria, did you wish to come in at this moment also? Uh, yes, I would like to, to say, again, I couldn't really quite understood the uh, question, the beginning of the question, but just to switch around Will's uh, answer to complement a little bit, just in case that was not exactly what he was asking. So I think that, yes, we do need to work on uh, having a more resilient um, production system, a more resilient world but we don't have to forget about, uh, or at least compromise with efficiency as well. So I think that all these trade restrictions, export bans and everything, what it also affects is efficiency, globally speaking. And that could also create, or at least uh, do not help uh, the problems of food insecurity that we, are, um, that we see in the world. And that can be even be worse with this COVID-19 um, situation that we have. So just to complement on a different side of that question. Thank you. Thank you, Valeria. There's also another question that is along the same theme, but more focused on India, that I would like to ask uh, you, uh, uh, Will and uh, Valeria, and if, uh, and if Madhur also wishes to comment. This is from Jagruti Das, who is a PhD scholar at ICAR National Dairy Institute, Karnal, India, who asks, in a country like India, the agricultural support reforms are a must, but they contribute to GHG due to overutilization of resources. How do we find the middle ground? Um, this is a tough question, but let me ask Will or Valeria if either of you wish to comment on this, and then I'll ask Madhur. How do we find the middle ground in a country like India? Uh, Will, if you would like to unmute yourself. One of the, um, one of the things we note uh, is that protection to agriculture in recent years in India has actually been negative with prices held below um, world market levels. That's one of the things that's revealed um, in the recent OECD studies. Um, that's a, a 
an, an important and, and interesting case. One of the results we get that Valeria um, explained was that once you take that away, you actually get an expansion of agricultural output uh, in India, including some of the products like, like dairy, which currently have very, very high um, emission intensities uh, in, in India. And I think one of the priorities is going to be the work of ICA in uh, raising efficiency and lowering the emission intensity of dairy in India is going to be terribly important, um, especially given the, the need for um, high, highly nutritious foods like dairy products uh, in India. Valeria? Yes, and I would just like to add that uh, it's just to this work, what it was is an illustration of different incentives and different impacts that we can get. So I think that the most important thing is to get the incentives right. Farmers do react to incentives. And in general policies, the objectives of the policies were always uh, concentrated in farm income and productivity growth. And want, what we want to make sure that we also add into this uh, basket is to the environmental outcomes. So we need to also be thinking of getting good environmental outputs from, uh, from these incentives that we give to the farmers. So that it is the repurposing of the policies that we're talking about. It's repurpose them in a way that, as Anne was saying, not to eliminate them all, we need them, but we need to make sure that the incentives are well designed and well implemented. So in a country like India, it will be maybe a combination of different instruments and again, we need to think about also the amount of instruments we have and the amount of objectives or specific things we want to get from those uh, policies that we want to implement. So I think that it could be a combination of things. But again, the most important thing is to make sure we get the right design of the policy. And in the designing of the policy, we need to make sure we include the right incentives for them that it could include uh, maybe also to, to make sure that we think in the long term, so maybe they need to do an investment, they need to make sure that they are covered in terms of profits so that they are keep going into that, that they have enough resources to overcome that period of transition or anything else that they need to. Thank you. Thank you very much, Valeria. Madhur, do you wish to come in? Otherwise, I also have a question for you that has come in from the uh, audience. Yes. Um... I think uh, the, the two points made by, by Will and Valeria are exactly spot on. The question is just about incentives. And the, and the issue is we need to sort of look a little bit deeper um, as to where these inefficiencies and overuse and what is the impact of them, why that is materializing and what's the productivity. I think we know the, the, <clears throat> and the, the evidence on this is the productive use of some of these inputs is highly inefficient. Uh, for example, groundwater and, and fertilizers in certain parts of India, not of course, not everywhere. But it also boils down to incentives, both in the output price side, input price side, etc. So I think it's extremely important. The second point to note, I think, is is that well, and, and and Valerie also made an extremely important point on repurposing. The question is not to take away from the farmers, as as Anne was saying is to say, how can you, um, the government has decided to support the farmer. The question is, how do we support the farmer in the most effective, in the most uh, productive, in the most efficient way, resilient way? 
Uh, and that I think there's plenty of scope. And um, and finally, one other thing, you know, uh, there's there's a large inventory of climate smart agricultural practices and technologies that are now on the table, and a lot more research is being done, um, and that through the CG system. I think it's important to bring, and of course, within India, there's, there's a lot of work being done in India in, in the ICAR system that needs to be brought to, <clears throat> to this debate. So it's repurposing, but repurposing with a specific purpose of not just you know, sort of doing whatever you want, but focusing the research also on things that are going to contribute to your, your sustainability and resilience while increasing farmer welfare. Thank you. Thank you, Madhur. We have so many questions, uh, great questions that have come in, but I know we are running out of time. So let me direct the last question here from Pierre Boulanger. I would like to direct it to Will and Valeria. Um, and uh, Pierre from the JRC in Spain is asking, how to better integrate decoupled support linked to environmental criteria, for example, greening payments in the EU, which can have further implications in terms of GHG emissions. Velo Valeria, would either of you have any thoughts on how to better integrate decoupled support linked to environmental criteria? Will, over to you first. Thanks very much, Pierre. Um, I think decoupled payments um, have some potential role here via conditionality. And one of the things we found very interesting as we did the work on the policy was the extent to which um, environmental conditionalities are used, especially in the US um, and the European Union. So I think there is some scope there for using access to those incentives um, to encourage uh, better production methods that will lower the environmental footprint. Valeria? Yeah, the beauty of coming after Will is that he says almost everything, so I don't have too much to say. But I would just like to add that those programs are, are a good idea, but the problem um, sometimes it is that the, by the design of it, they are very hard or to measure the impact so that's the key thing to be able to have good data to really measure if whatever the farmer needed to do, if it was effective or not. And then the implementation themselves, sometimes they are just too complicated to follow up for the farmers. So there's still a lot of research to do, but it is definitely a very interesting uh, way of looking at this and something that we are in particularly very interested to, to keep working on that. Thank you. Thank you very much, speakers. I should let you know that we have so many questions that have come in. Now I'd like to acknowledge the people who have submitted those questions, including some that you know, before I come to all the speakers for the key takeaways. But a big thank you to Ruchi, to Zainal Abdin, to Ibrahim Kora, to Saeed Zaurali, to Ramesh Deshpande, Stefano Tiano, Caroline Odoz, Jagdish Dubey, uh, Tim Weiskel, Robinson Elijah, Brian Bruns, who we know well, who had a very specific question on modeling for you, Valeria, Lorraine Potter, Kaka, Nadiradze, Guillermo Zabella, and uh, many more names that are still coming in, Mansur Hussein and so forth. Our apologies that we can't take all your questions and comments, but truly appreciate that you joined in. At this point, I'd like to come over to our speakers for them to share their final takeaway messages that they'd like to leave the audience with, and we will go in reverse order. And I will begin with uh, Anne, and then I will go 
to uh, Leonardo, Madur, Valeria, and Will. So over to you, Anne, for your final takeover messages and then all speakers thereafter. Yeah, thank you very much, Rosal. I, I think my final takeaway is really, I'm just so excited to have this initiative about repurposing subsidies and repurposing support on the global agenda and to see the enthusiasm of the countries that have joined the Policy Action Coalition who are ranged from the UK and Switzerland to Togo uh, in terms of you know, economic uh, levels and, and capacities, et cetera. The re political recognition of the need to do this is so important. And the analysis that has been presented here and I'm sure the future analysis that will be done is gonna help those policymakers make good decisions about how to use their public uh, largesse to help support these planetary goals. Thanks a lot. Um, so thank you. Um, I just want to say that this uh, research is really at the heart of what uh, needs to be um, done in order to attain these complex targets of reducing simultaneously carbon emissions and attaining development uh, goals. So, um, so I want to, to congratulate, to, to acknowledge this, this work, more of need is needed. And just to say that uh, one of the things that is emerging, and this is out of the work that we are doing at the nuclear economy, is that all these policies for getting the prices right, for doing these adjustments in the, in, in the policies, um, including low carbon policies are really at the heart of delivering economic outcomes and more inclusive outcomes for the people. So, so welcome the, the continuation of this line of work. Thanks. Uh, as, as with Anne, I think you know, the, the questions um, just retrade the, and re-energize us in terms of looking at the importance of this work as we move forward. Um, and, and this is, uh, and the next stage is to us, this, this study is sort of foundational in the sense of developing a model, which of course needs to be built up and built out, but it's a start to look at uh, looking at these kinds of trade-offs that we now need to take to the country level. And we'll be working with Anne um, and the Policy Action Coalition uh, to start applying this, uh, this modeling effort, uh, bringing in the relevant dimensions and, and doing the analysis in a much more contextually relevant and in a specific way so that we can actually provide the right kind of guidance. There are lots of issues, number of things that need to be done um, and we want to work with the governments to start uh, to, to see, and, and, and as, um, as Anne said, there's a lot of interest uh, in, the, in, in the governments to try and move towards a much more resilient system as the climate change is already starting to bite. And, and, and I'm sure um, in post-COVID uh, uh, period, uh, there will be even more focus on, on resilience and the need to focus on resilience. So we look forward to working with the Policy Action Coalition and IFPRI um, and, and to further analysis on this. Thank you. And I just wanted to give one more, um, just emphasize the key message from our uh, research that it was that we illustrated the reduction of domestic support and border measures as a way just to give some ideas on how these support measures can be reformed or repurposed in such a way that they can only they can not only support farm incomes and productivity growth, but also provide the right incentives for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that for me, it was the interesting part of this, just to give an illustration in order to give us some uh, looking forward to see what else we can do. Thank you. Great. Um, and uh, just to, to sum up, we've got multiple goals here, really, really fundamental, important goals like poverty reduction, resilience to climate change, mitigation, 
of climate change. We're going to need multiple instruments to achieve those goals, getting uh, prices for products, product prices for carbon light, um, and we're going to need to look at productivity changes that can help us contribute to all of those goals, reducing uh, land use, um, reducing land use change, um, <clears throat> and raising uh, productivity, lowering poverty, um, improving resilience. We've got to use multiple instruments to get to those goals, and we've got to expand our choice of possible uh, uh, instruments by looking at research and development, structured research and development. Thank you. Thank you very much, Will and Valeria, for you and your co-authors for your very important uh, paper. And we are all eagerly looking forward to the next stages of that work. And a big thank you to Madhur, Leonardo and Anne for sharing their perspectives and comments and the encouragement they're giving us also to continue this work for a post-COVID world. A big thank you to all our listeners and viewers. We appreciate your questions and comments. And uh, we are, invite you to please continue to share them with us. They'll be very helpful as we go forward. And a big thank you to everyone. Have a safe and a wonderful day and uh, week to come. Thank you.